Matthew chapter 7, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, we are now in the last major section. This, this chapter will be in the Sermon on the Mount for about another month, through about uh, November 21st. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll complete this study and move into the Advent season already. Hard to believe. All right, how many of you married folk have ever thought your spouse said or did something wrong? <laughs> you can tell the truth, right? How many of you unmarried folk have ever thought a parent or close friend said or did something wrong? All right. It should be every hand by now. If you're still left, have you ever thought anyone said or did something wrong in your life? Okay. Let's, let's go there. We've all experienced being close to someone who said something, did something that that was wrong, maybe it was offensive, maybe it was obvious to us what they were doing, it seemed sinful in some way. Um, maybe they didn't even see it, or maybe, maybe our perception of the problem was misguided too. Maybe our, what we were seeing, we weren't fully understanding. We've all been there and done that. Assuming that the other person is brother or sister in Christ, Jesus says something here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 that is help for us. It, it speaks to us in how we engage with other people, particularly when it's that difficult situation of going to someone when we believe that something they've said or done is wrong. How we, how we sort of confront in those situations in a, a loving way. And, and so, in fact, Jesus says here something we should not do and something we should do in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, particularly when I'm engaging with a brother or sister in Christ. We'll go through that, and then we'll look at verse 6. There's a little bit of an abrupt shift between verses 5 and 6, but there's still this theme of, of making judgment, uh, although it's with a different people in, in verse 6. In, in this case, he's talking about dealing with some unbelievers. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But let me read verses 1 through 5, and then let's talk about it and look at what it says. Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We need to start by being very clear as to what this is not saying. And that's because our culture reads and quotes Matthew 7.1 as a means of seeking often to stifle Christians. Uh, Matthew 7.1 gets rolled out on a number of occasions under the guise of, don't you know Jesus said you're not supposed to judge? You're not supposed to say that this is wrong. You're not supposed to say anything about this that, that might be perceived as negative because Jesus said, don't judge. And so if you're going to go talking about sin or what you call sin, you need to stop talking about that. I don't want to hear it because Jesus said, don't do that. That's the prevailing popular interpretation of Matthew 7.1, and it is very, very wrong. And, and we know it's wrong because in this very context, when we get down to verse 6, we're going to see Jesus reaching a judgment. He, he's talking about people who are adamantly and violently rejecting the word of God, and he is making the judgment that their actions are akin to that of dogs 
and pigs. And so there's judging involved in that. When you get down to verses 15 and 16 of Matthew 7, he's talking about identifying false teachers. Uh, when you hear them speak, you're, you're hearing what they're saying and you're to weigh it against what is truth and then you will recognize by their fruits. And so again, discernment, judging, wisdom, all part of what we are supposed to possess as believers. When we get to Matthew chapter 18, and, and he gives to his church a process for how to engage with a person who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but is carrying on in unrepentant sin. His thing, the sequence that he walks us through there, it involves judgment. It involves making a judgment that includes witnesses to try to be sure that we're being careful about that so that we confront someone who's carrying on an unrepentant sin. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 chides the, the Corinthian believers, the young church at Corinth, and he says, you have got this sexual immorality going on in your midst and you're acting as if it's not even there. You're just letting it sort of blend in and you shouldn't. This should not be going on in your midst. Again, I, I would say to you, this is just some of many scriptures in, in which we are called to be wise and, and discerning, not, not sort of gullible and just tolerant of anything. We're not to look the other way at our culture's reckless rebellion, especially if it's creeping into the church of Jesus Christ. We're not to stand by and, and do nothing when a brother or sister seems to be shipwrecking their faith by things that they're doing. We, we are to engage. There's lots of New Testament verses that give us direction for being gracious and wise in doing so. But we are not to be sinful judges. We're not to be carrying on in sinful judgment. Let me give you three examples of, of, of what I think that means, what I think it is that Jesus is speaking to here when he says, judge not that you not be judged. Three forms of sinful judgment. Number one, making rash judgments without full information. Who amongst us has experienced that, where you have, you have assumed that what they meant, what they did, this, this is the one that we we typically do with those who are nearest to us or those that we already think we know, and so we sort of think we can interpret their words based on, on, on our own sort of understanding. We can discern their motives without ever asking. We read into their silence and we assume that it means anger or, or, or something. We've all, we've all done this. You married couples, I, I, some of you are smiling. You, you, you've, you've engaged in this sort of activity. We, we draw conclusions without real information, without going and saying, hey, what's, what's going on? How are you doing? Um, you said this, or, or, or this happened, and, and I didn't quite understand it. We, we sort of come to our own conclusions. Sinful judging is premature. It damages relationships. In the 19th century, J.C. Ryle wrote, nothing is so common as to judge too favorably or too unfavorably from merely looking at the outward appearance of things. We are apt to form hasty opinions of others, either for good or evil on very insufficient grounds. We pronounce some men to be good, others bad, some to be godly, others ungodly without anything but appearance to aid our decision. The moment that you are sure, you know what that person did, what happened, and why they did it, without ever asking a question, without ever engaging in a conversation, you're probably bordering on trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit in that moment. Trying to discern something that short of asking questions and having a conversation, we don't do well. We don't 
say that's what we're doing, that we're sort of impersonating the Holy Spirit, but if you think you know another's motives or desires without speaking with them, then that's functionally what we're doing. Second example of sinful judging is a judgmental or critical attitude toward others. A lot of different ways you can think about this. There's the person who wronged you or you perceive wronged you at some point that you have written off, done with that person. I, I will have nothing to do with it. There is just no way that they could sort of earn their way back into my favor. There's a chance that you're struggling with some judgmentalism if, if that's sort of the attitude of just cutting them off or classifying a person by ethnicity or clothing or speech or some other external factor and believing that from what I see, I, I can draw some assumptions here about who this person is and what their character is and why they're doing what they're doing. You're, you're probably struggling with some degree of judgmentalism. Or if, if your look at somebody else looks and says, well, their, their Christian walk isn't quite as rigorous as mine. Their faith doesn't seem as strong. Their convictions are not as bold as mine or their weaknesses seem more glaring than mine. And you make note of that and look down on them in some way, even if only subtly, just sort of judge them as a, as a notch below. That's Probably a bit of a struggle with judgmentalism, critical sort of spirit. Romans 14 is all about believers passing judgment on one another. And in verse 10, Paul uses the language of despising or looking down on a brother. It's this sort of condemning attitude. Third example, sinful judging. Judging by a man-made standard that differs from God's. Romans 14 again comes into play. The, the topic in Romans 14 is dietary stuff. You're eating this or you're not eating this and, and how you do that, what you eat, what you don't eat now becomes a, a point of judgment. And that's what these Christians are doing. They turn dietary rules into tools of judgment. You and I in our culture today, in the Christian culture, the evangelical world have a host of opportunities for this. Views on masks and vaccines and schools all may be matters of conscience. There may be biblical principles that come into play that help to shape our thinking in terms of application. And there may be brothers and sisters who have developed differing convictions from ours. The question is, can I clearly point to scripture and say, no, this is, this is not a proper biblical conviction or this is the correct biblical conviction or is it somewhere in between? Because there are times I may be judging by a man-made rule, or at least my own sort of interpretation of that. We, we've seen this already in abundance in the Sermon on the Mount, because so much of what Jesus points back to are the scribes and the Pharisees, who have taken God's law and abstracted what they thought was useful from it and now created this whole system of man-made rules, all designed to judge people by appearance and to flatter themselves. All different rules that made them look good and others look bad by which they made judgments. And when we make applications or rules that exceed scripture, we're doing the same thing. That's what sinful judging looks like. And that's what Jesus condemns. And so he gives the warning then that follows in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's, there's really two applications of this. The, the, the one is sort of on the horizontal level, and that is if you're the kind of person who is 
sort of marked by that critical attitude, who doesn't like giving people the benefit of the doubt, who's very hard on other people, then don't be surprised if other people sort of treat you the same way. That's not a justification. I, I don't mean to say that somehow they're right for doing what they're doing in response, but in some way what Jesus is saying is true, and that is if, you, if you're gonna sort of dish this out and be this kind of judgmental person, don't be surprised if others are not as willing to give you the benefit of the doubt when the opportunity arises. The, the more serious implication of what Jesus says in verse two is facing the judgment of God. In Romans chapter two, verse one, it says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's saying, if, if, if this is how you see yourself, that you, the judge, you're the one who's going to determine everything that everybody else is doing wrong and be very critical in spirit toward others, understand there is one impartial and true judge, and you will be held accountable by him. And so to the measure that you put out is the measure that you will receive and you will stand before the king's court. There's not some double standard here that allows us to be judgmental toward other people and finding all of their flaws and then crying foul when somebody points back at us in, in some way. And Jesus uses this parable in verses three through five. It's the speck and the log parable that we've, we've thought about often. That, that's a very familiar account that Jesus gives here. And the first thing he does here is he allows for the fact that you, and, and we're putting, uh, spoken about you in the term of the, the, the accuser, the, the sort of person who's being tempted towards judging, you have perhaps made an accurate observation. You do see something wrong because he allows here that the other person has a speck in their eye because in fact he's going to say at the end of this in verse five, then you can begin to help that person with the speck. So he's allowing the fact that you've maybe made a right observation about someone else and some sin, some area that they're struggling with, but he's concerned now about the, the attitude with which you do that. You've spotted this piece of sawdust in their eye that somehow they're not noticing. And what he's saying here is the one who judges sinfully, who has this critical attitude, is plowing forward, outstretched hand, pointing, trying to, to point at that little speck, when in reality, as Jesus describes it, their own vision is impaired by this log that they can't even point straight because they can't even clearly see what it is they're going after because they're so so blind to their own sin, their own foolishness. He's focused on something relatively small in another's life while seemingly being oblivious to some significant shortcoming in his own life. And so that's why Jesus then says in verse five, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There are three uses of first in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Three times he uses the Greek word protos, which would mean of utmost importance, first of all, or most importance. And this is the third one. I just wanna draw your attention to the other two previously. We've talked about the one in particular because I, I meant to last week and I really didn't. But in each of these instances, Jesus is talking about, this is what life looks like in my kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of mine and how you should live lives that are different. But in each one he says, but first, you really need to do this. 
Here's what uniquely sets apart those who are followers of Christ. Matthew 5.24 was one of these. This is the, you're getting ready to present your gift at the altar, and then you remember that your brother or sister might have something against you. You, what comes to mind is there's some suspicion in your mind that there is somebody who heard what you said or reacted or in some way has something against you, and you've sort of blown it off, and now you're continuing on with worship, and Jesus says, stop. First, go and be reconciled. Put your gift down, stop your, your act of worship, and go find that person and be reconciled. Pursue peace as far as it depends on you. Second one was Matthew 6.33, and we, this was the one that we looked at last week. When you are tempted to seek after things of the earth. Remember the, the passage on anxiety, and one of the things he talks about is that the, the, seeking treasure on earth, this goes all the way back to the worshiping God and worshiping stuff. When you become consumed with material security, earthly treasure, these sorts of things, they will distract you and they will make you anxious. His response to that was, so first, it's not just stop doing that, first, Worship God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The priority for, if you're dealing with anxiety, the, the very first priority is to know what does, what does God call me to do? What, what is righteous according to him? Prioritize the pursuit of the king and his ways. Then here's the third one. It's this one in Matthew 7, verse 5. Brother or sister has some speck, something's off, they're in need of ministry, but he says, before you rush in with the correction before you're right there with the exhortation, not, not saying there's not a place for it, but before you do that, first, he says, stop and examine, pause and check your own heart, examine your own motives, consider why, why this is something that is hitting me in this way. Well, what am I seeing here? Am I doing something here that's antagonizing this or that's ramping this up? First, stop and look in the mirror and check to see, is there some crazy plank that's sitting right in front of my own vision that's distorting how I'm looking at this? I just want to encourage you here, and you can apply this to dealing with conflict. You can apply this to doing what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ when we try to help somebody else. This, this passage should be big in your toolbox of how to deal with these kind of difficult situations. It, it should be high on your list of how I'm supposed to do these things. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 should be something that you have in mind because whether or not you started the argument, whether or not it seems as if the other person is entirely wrong in this and you're just coming along to try to help them, whether or not there's some disagreement here and you're scoring it as 50-50 or 80-20 and the 80's probably on that person, right? Um, don't go rushing in pointing the finger of blame. If your number one priority, when there has been some kind of falling out, some kind of conflict, if your number one priority in pursuing that person is to hear them say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, if that's the words that you are just most wanting to hear, you are probably going in with the wrong attitude. You probably will make things worse or you will be disappointed or you will be shocked to find that in the other person's mind, their first priority is hearing you say, 
I'm sorry, I was wrong, and you will be at a stalemate. That's why this passage is so crucial. The call here is to own my own sin first. It is to check my own heart first. Doesn't mean that every time there's, you're, you're trying to minister to someone in need or every time there's a conflict that you've necessarily sinned, what it does mean, though, is I, I do need to pause and say, I got anything going on here that's going to create a problem? Is there anything going on in my own heart that I've brought to this table of, of problems or conflict? Consider how my words, my tone of voice, my silence, my action, my inaction may have instigated or elevated a situation. Take care to see if there is a log in your own eye first, because that's what you and I have control over. Whether or not that other person ever finds, get, gets to the point of saying, yep, thank you for helping me with that spec. I, I can't control that, but I can control my own response and how I approach that person and being sure that I've examined my own motives in doing so. The aim for conflict resolution, for ministering to somebody with a spec is, is ultimately, the ideal here is two parties who remember that I'm a sinner and I'm flawed and I need help and who come together and meet one another saying, listen, what I said or did was wrong and I, I'm asking your forgiveness. That's the goal in this, is to bring humble people together to minister to one another. It, it, when you've done that, when you've, you've tried to take the log out, you've tried to confess if there's your own sin, then, then if the speck still remains, then it's an opportunity for conversation and, and a, an opportunity for you to ask some questions and to help them now begin to see that, that piece of sawdust that may still be lingering there if they're not responding to it, to help them to see what, what it is they might be bringing to the table. But the goal first First, Jesus says, is take the log out of your own eye. Because if we're honest, we know our own propensities to blame shift, to be petty, to want to exact a pound of flesh, to try to save face in situations, to try to get the apology that we think we deserve. All of those sorts of things drive us in those moments when what Jesus says is first, take the log out of your own eye. Because you are part of the kingdom of heaven. And the mark of the kingdom of heaven, actually we could go back to the marks and the Beatitudes, is to be merciful. It is to be humble. It is to be eager to forgive and to pursue peace. And if those are our marks, then we are desiring to go ahead and, and be humble before the other person, knowing I still struggle with sin, taking responsibility for what I've brought to the table, and then asking God for the opportunity to serve that other person. All right, with that in mind, let's Finished with verse six, let's read the verse. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. One of the things I've said to you before that, that has really stood out to me in going through the Sermon on the Mount for the first time I've preached this um, is, is just the, 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 the seeing the connectedness, seeing the structure of this sermon and, and the flow of the sermon, and it's not just all of these separate pieces, points, sort of different, differing points, but this flows together. And so this is one of those points when you go from verse 5 to 6 when you go, um, what's, the, what's the connection here? And I'll suggest to you that it's almost a counterbalance. It, it still has to do with judging. The judging in verses 1 through 5 is, is amongst those in the kingdom, those who are followers of Christ and how we're to be humble and patient and, and self-examining. The judging in verse six now is, 
is actually a more, it, it, it's actually making a more severe judgment because it's having to do with our dealing with the world and with some who are adamantly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, who do not want anything to do with the teaching of, of God's word. And so he's, he's sort of flipping it at this point and saying, okay, I, I've, I've got you to, to slow down a little bit on your judging. And next time conflict comes up this week, you're, you're going to pause and think about that log. So you slow down. But there are situations where you do have to make severe judgments that may feel harsh. And Jesus is teaching us here that, that there may be opportunity for that. As we engage with the world, we engage with salt and light. So Jesus said that back in chapter 5. Salt in the sense that we have a preservative effect in the world. The world is decaying around us. There is... Um, sinful moral decay around us. And the idea is that as believers, we should live so differently. People should see the righteousness of Christ, that God should be using that to have an influence on the world around us, something that slows down the decay. And then light. We're, we're called to, to not simply be moral for the sake of saying, look, I'm a moral person. I, I am this way because of what Jesus did. And I want to point you back to Jesus Christ and pointing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our witness of the gospel, our, our going out into the world as salt and light, also does not allow for us to offer up the gospel as if it's just some sort of optional menu item. As if, I've got something nice here. You're, you're a decent person who wants to be more successful or more happy or more at peace, so why don't you try Jesus? Let me, let me pitch a little Jesus to you and see if that works and, and if you can sort of add Jesus to what's going on. Because the gospel is precious and sacred. The, the, the word of God and the truth of Christ's sacrifice for us is a profound message. And it is profound because it, the starting point is to point to man's desperate need for a savior. It is to reveal the fact that we are sinners who are at odds with our creator, who are enemies of his and who need to be reconciled to him, who need to be made right. We have, been, we have alienated ourselves from a holy God by worshiping ourselves and satisfying ourselves. And, and we need what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And that's why the gospel it's a treasure. The, the truth of what Jesus Christ has done is the most valuable thing that we know or have. It is that the sinless Son of God gave his life on the cross, suffered brutally, and experienced the wrath of his Father, taking our sin on himself and experiencing the judgment that we so rightfully deserve and then rising from the dead in order that he might offer to us eternal life and forgiveness. That is the treasure of the gospel. And listen, we know this. If you've, you've done any efforts at, at sharing the gospel with people, you know that we are called to be faithful and salt and light, and, and we do that, but we also know that apart from the gracious work of God to open blind eyes, then many, many people reject the gospel. You and I can look back on our own testimonies and see periods of life where we were not embracing Jesus Christ. And suddenly, by God's grace, suddenly the gospel became something that we, we realized was beautiful and glorious, and we, we turned to Christ. There are, there are those, however, that Jesus is speaking of in verse 6, where he's getting into the manner of that rejection. There are many who reject 
But his point in verse 6 is there are some whose rejection he describes as being akin to that of dogs and pigs. Dogs and pigs, not necessarily a category of two animals that we usually pair up. And that's because we're not thinking like first century Jews in terms of categories of very common, unclean animals. They, they, when they heard him say dogs, they did not think of adorable Fluffy on the couch with his head on our leg, looking up with those big brown eyes, saying, I love you, right? That's what we think he's saying. No, they pictured the stray dogs who wandered around the city, whose fur was matted, who you didn't want to get near, and you told your child, don't touch that dog. It's probably got the mange, and it'll probably bite you because they have one thing in mind, and that's they've been at the dump or wherever it is to try to find food, and that's, that's all they want. They are disgusting in some sense. And that's what Jesus is describing here, this sort of dirty, unclean thing. And that's why he compares it to pigs, dirty, sort of trash-eating animals that the Jews were forbidden from eating. They were not clean. There was nothing that they could do with, with them. And in fact, in the worst case, they were like wild boars where they were actually dangerous and you had to stay out of their way. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the dogs and pigs together serve as a model of people who are savage, vicious, and held in abomination. You see that? The, the picture is, these are unbelievers. What's true of unbelievers is we already know they are, they are blind to, to the goodness of Christ. They are enslaved to their sin. But in fact, Jesus is almost taking it a step further here. And they have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They have heard the truth of God's word, and their response is to be repulsed by it. They don't want to hear it. It just stirs up anger. They are provoked by the idea that there is a holy creator God to whom they must answer in some way. And they have no desire to continue to hear this gospel of Jesus Christ or, or their need of a savior. And, and the warning from Jesus is that there are mockers, people who don't just decline the gospel, but who do so with malice. They are not ambiguous about denying the fact that, listen, I don't care what you believe, there is no God, I don't have to answer to anybody, and, and I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Don't, don't start talking about my sin, that's your category, your definition, and they have rejected it outright, and they find the message of the cross to be absurd and wrong. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 6 is that to repeatedly repeatedly urge those people to believe in him, he says is, it, it's like taking something holy and sacred and holding it out in front of the pack of stray dogs and saying, here, got something really nice for you. And, and, and hoping that they don't just attack you in the process or taking costly and precious pearls and, and scattering them on the ground in front of pigs and the only reaction is the pigs become violent when they find they can't eat them. These are inedible and they are angry because of what you've put down there. And that's what Jesus is describing here. Now, keep in mind, the prior warning about judgmentalism is this, this does not, in fact, the prior warning forbids us from pre-judging people. In other words, by going by their appearance, their clothing, the words that come out of their mouth, their lifestyle, whatever it is, and saying, nah, that person's just not worthy of the gospel, or I know that person will reject the gospel. No, that's not, that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is people who have already heard the truth, and their reaction to it is angry and hostile, 
There comes a point, and this is a hard teaching, this is a difficult teaching, but there comes a point when he's saying at, at, at some level, this is a shake the dust off your feet and plead to God for him to be merciful to this individual and to bring that person to repentance and to ask God for wisdom to move on now to someone else. Maybe there's another neighbor or a coworker or a family member, and, and this one has, this one has simply mocked or been angry or violent, in fact, at the incredible, precious treasure of the gospel. Jesus is saying, at some level, there's a time for saying, okay, this, this is precious, what I've got, and, and I need to bring it now to someone else, and I need to proclaim it elsewhere. What, what is abundantly clear from this passage, and, and, and let me just say, that this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, Matthew 7, 6. This isn't one that it's easy to say if a person responds poorly twice or if they raise their voice this high or if they curse this way that you know that dog and pig applies here. I, I, I think this is one that takes prayer. It probably takes seeking counsel from others to check our own heart and motives and how we're responding to this person. I think it takes some wisdom and pleading to God for wisdom. But there is clearly from what Jesus taught, there are instances when we need to indeed shake the dust off our feet and press on. Here's what is abundantly clear. The truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure anyone could ever possess, and we must treat it as such. Jesus will go on, and Matthew will record in Matthew 13, Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He wants to be sure that that treasure is there, so he covers it and runs off to the real estate agent to make the transaction so he can buy that field because it's got the greatest treasure in the middle of it that he has ever seen in his life. And then he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. As believers in Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ is the greatest thing in our lives. Amen? That is, that is what gives us life and hope and purpose, and eternity, and we rest everything on that. And so we should be faithful to answer the call to make disciples, which means proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. There are times, though, when somebody is adamant about attacking and degrading this treasure that our best response is to pray for God's mercy on that person and to continue the work of going out and proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but doing so with a humble heart. Because even as we go, we recognize that apart from the gospel, apart from the grace of Christ, you and I would be those avowed enemies of the cross, doomed for destruction, that Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 3. But God mercifully rescued and if you are here this morning trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you know what it is to be rescued from, from being lost and in darkness. You know what it is to belong to Jesus Christ, and you possess by his grace that great treasure. And that is what drives our worship. That's what drives our, our living and our serving, and even, even our going to a brother and sister who's struggling with a, a speck. And having prayerfully examined our own heart, carefully ministering to them and graciously ministering to them because we have been blessed with this sweet treasure, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here this morning, anyone listening online, who would in any way come away from this with the idea that the way to be right with God is to, to be a little less critical, to be a little bit more gracious with others, that they just need to change some of the ways they act toward other people. I pray, Lord, that you would show them that that is, that is not at the heart of this, that we are sinners who are part of a fallen world, who are desperately in need of a Savior, and that our hope is found in Christ alone, in his life and death and resurrection, and that by trusting in him and believing on him, confessing our sin, asking his forgiveness, only in that is there hope. That is the beauty of the gospel. Father, help us. I, I suspect that as we've talked through verse 6 this morning, there are brothers and sisters here who have that, that antagonistic family member, that angry friend, that person whom they have tried to speak of Christ to and have been rebuffed angrily. Pray, Lord, that you would grant wisdom, that you would give them a peace about the work that they have done in seeking to scatter seeds, to speak of Christ. Father, if, if indeed it is the work of your spirit for them to, to press on, then we plead for your mercy on that one who is lost and who so desperately needs Christ. And Father, I, I pray for us as a body of believers, Lord, that we would be faithful to your truth, that we would be unafraid to call sin, sin, unafraid and unashamed to stand up for what is holy and right and true, but that you would graciously guard us from the sort of judgmentalism that would mark us as those people who, who think they're better than others, who stay away from other people, who seem to have no connection. May we be like Christ and be amongst those in our community who need him. May we be serving, may we be loving and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Help us in our homes to apply these truths, to examine our own hearts. We pray that your spirit would give us the conviction and the assurance that identifying sinful thoughts and deeds and motives in our own hearts leads us on the path to reconciliation. If we will see these things and repent of them, confess them, that you are gracious and generous to forgive us. And so help us to see that this place that the world would think is, is vulnerable, um, that is sort of burying our soul, that, that it's a good place to be because our confidence is fully in you. It is not in ourselves. It is in our true belief that Christ alone is the one perfect one whose sacrifice for our sin was complete and sufficient. Lord, help us to live out this sort of graciousness toward one another, not being sinful judgers. We need your help to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.